listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Ohio vs. the World. You are listening to Episode 7, Season 1. And today, we are talking about Ohio versus murder. There was just way too much to get to, so this is going to be a two-part episode, uh, and this is part one. I've got to give a shout-out to Mrs. Ohio vs. the World, who loves mysteries. She loves murder mysteries. Serial, Dateline, Gone Girl, Agatha Christie. She watches and has probably seen every episode of Law & Order SVU. She misspoke at a birthday party. We're at a karaoke birthday party. Someone was singing a song, asked who it was. I wasn't familiar with the song, and she, instead of saying it was Sam Smith, she said, I'm pretty sure this is Sam Shepard. We both looked at each other. We knew that it was wrong, and we realized that we remembered Sam Shepard is the doctor, Dr. Sam Shepard, that the fugitive TV series and the movies were named after. The Cleveland doctor, the Bay Village, Ohio doctor, accused of killing his wife, Marilyn Shepard, in 1954. I get home that night, I start researching, because I don't really know what happened in the Sam Shepard murder trial. Um, I find out that there were three trials. There was a trial in 1954, again in 1966, and the one we'll focus even more on today is the civil trial versus Cuyahoga County uh, in, in the year 2000. Sam Shepard was a doctor in Cleveland, and it is true that The Fugitive, a very popular TV show in the 60s, um, a very popular movie in the 90s starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones that we've all seen a million times. Uh, here's my favorite, my favorite clip from that movie. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. But the murder of Marilyn Shepard in July of 1954 on the shores of Lake Erie at her home in in Bay Village, Ohio, on Lake Road, is the most famous crime in Ohio history. At the time, it was called the, the trial of the century. It caught the public's imagination. A rich, good-looking doctor, young doctor, kills his beautiful, pregnant wife, or so it was alleged. Dr. Shepard has, has a story that he was awoke up to her being attacked, and he was thus attacked. Uh, he chased the attacker out of the house, chased him down to the lake in their backyard, Lake Erie, um, where he was knocked unconscious yet again. It's a very different story than the one that's told in The Fugitive. That's Dr. Richard Kimball in The Fugitive, um, who claims that a man with one arm killed his wife. Shepard claims it was a larger man with with bushy hair. Dr. Sam Shepard obviously lived in Cleveland, and Dr. Richard Kimball from The Fugitive was actually, I think, from Indiana. 
But the similarities are there. The fame that Sam Shepard reached in that trial and the lawyers and everyone involved in it, it made it the most famous crime in the history of Ohio. And before the O.J. Simpson trial, it was the trial of the century. It was the murder case that everyone knew. Everyone had a different opinion on what happened, who did it, who killed Marilyn Shepard on July 4th, 1954. Today, our guest is going to be Bill Mason. He's the former Cuyahoga County prosecutor, elected to multiple terms up there in Cleveland. But the first week he got the job in 1999, this case lands on his desk. Sam Shepard's son, the estate of Dr. Sam Shepard, sues the state of Ohio. And the Cuyahoga County prosecutors have to take on a case saying that Sam Shepard was wrongfully imprisoned by the state of Ohio for 10 years. The civil trial that we'll talk about today will take you inside that trial, a three-month-long television spectacle on court TV and in the news. And we'll talk about, was the result of that case, did that finally settle this murder? This is going to be a true crime episode. We're going to look at the evidence. We're going to look at the suspects. We're going to look at the events. We're going to look at the science, the DNA, the blood, all that stuff. To, we're going to look back. We're not going to make a decision for you. We're going to let the listener decide, did Sam do it? Our beer of the episode, we're actually going to be going down to Asheville, North Carolina. The beer has an Ohio connection. My One of my best friends from college, Doug Reeser, and his wife, Jess, started an amazing brewery in Asheville. Um, Doug from New Philadelphia, Ohio, in Tuscaroras County. But they started a place called Burial Beer Company. And it's in Asheville, North Carolina, like I said, which is one of the great beer capitals in the United States. If you ever get a chance to go down there, you've got to go check out Burial. That's where all the locals drink. That's their favorite beer down there. And they have some amazing beers. Uh, I saw Doug a few months ago, and I was able to smuggle a few beers back. Um, And today I'm drinking uh, one of my last remaining ceremonial session IPAs. It's a ceremonial. It's a low alcohol content. It's a session IPA, which means it's got a little lower uh, alcohol content, but man, it's so good. It's so I love citrusy beers like this, um, but it still tastes like an IPA. It's really refreshing. It's a great summer beer. It's a great, you know, that first day of spring when it warms up, and it's a great beer to discuss today because Burial Beer Company, um, just in their name, we're going to be digging up Sam Shepard's body in this case just like the, the estate of Sam Shepard did to do DNA testing in 1996, 1997. And we're also going to be digging up the bottom body of the victim, Marilyn Shepard, and her unborn fetus, just like the Cuyahoga County prosecutor we're with today, Bill Mason, ordered to have done uh, before the trial in 2000. So check out Burial. It's Burial Beer Co. or BurialBeer.com. Again, if you're ever down in Asheville, that is the brewery you got to check out first. Say hi to Doug. Say hi to Jess when you're down there for us. Uh, also, we have just got an uh, event that we are helping to sponsor. Uh, speaking of beer, the Broke Man's Marathon. Uh, it's, a running, it's a running company that does cheap half marathons and marathons um, in and around Ohio. Um, our friend Katie and uh, Abe over there at Broke Man's. Go to brokemans.com. They are doing a beer mile in Columbus. Um, if you don't know what a beer mile is, well, 
you basically run a lap, you drink a beer, you run another lap, and it's timed. Um, they are having the Broke Man's Beer Mile. Um, it's going to be on Monday, May 29th, which is Memorial Day. Um, again, Ohio V. The World is one of the sponsors um, for the event. We're actually the named charity, um, and they'll be making a donation to our scholarship program. Um, everyone who signs up, it's in the morning, um, probably from about 8.30 to, to noon, 8.30 to 1. Um, and again, you can get all the information on that. If you want to be a part of that event, Brokemans has a ton of people show up for their races. Uh, like I said, they basically throw marathons for like half the price of all these other giant marathons that you see. Um, it's really caught on here in Ohio. So check out Brokemans.com. And again, we'll remind you of it at the end of the show and the upcoming shows, but that is Memorial Day, Monday, May 29th. Check them out, Brokemans.com for their Brokemans Beer Mile. So we're going to get to it right away. I don't want to waste any more time talking about did he do it, didn't he do it. Let's get into it. Let's go through all three trials. Let's go through the murder. Let's talk about the murder of Marilyn Shepard, the, tri- the crime of the century in Ohio. We're going to jump in the Wayback Machine and take it back to 1954. This is Part 1, Episode 7, Ohio versus Murder. They were encouraged and indeed made signatory to a complete whitewash of perhaps the worst investigation in the history of American crime. I think it's an awful shame. Well, I would have been eliminated. You feel that they would have fired on you if you'd gone? Oh, I know that. I'm sure of this. So in October, that was the night before trial, and when I, when I watched it, I was like, oh my God. It's suspected that there was still evidence in the coroner's office. rejected him and he went he lost it and he used the lamp that was sitting on the nightstand to bludgeon her to death they said without with certainty that watch had to be within two feet of the blood flying from where it was flying from and sam put the watch on himself so it was pretty there was no other way for that blood spattering on the watch but if it was on his wrist then he was causing the harm to him Maryland. defendant sammy shepherd not guilty of murder in the first degree but guilty of murder in the second degree Sam Shepard was 31 years old when Marilyn Shepard died. Sam was a doctor. He was class president. He met Marilyn. They were high school sweethearts. And he moved to California, just like his brothers and his fathers, to study medicine in Los Angeles. And they got married while he was in L.A. and eventually moved back to Cleveland, where he worked at Bayview Hospital on the city's west side. He worked there. His brother Stephen worked at the same hospital. Um, and Sam had it all. He had money. He had a beautiful home on Lake Avenue, uh, right on the lake, his backyard overlooking Lake Erie. Uh, if you've ever been to Bay Village and, and West Lake, which is another town right by there, there's just beautiful giant homes along the lake. Um, his wife, Marilyn, they had a child, seven year old Chip, Reese, Sam Reese Shepherd, at this time in 1954. And you've got to understand about Bay Village. It's a little bit bigger suburb now. I have a lot of friends who are from Bay. Um, But Bay Village back then was about 300 homes, a small lakeside community, uh, 15, 20 minutes west of Cleveland, one of the outer ring suburbs uh, of Cleveland. And it was an idyllic place, just like the 1950s were an idyllic place. Sam had it all, like we said, but he also had some secrets. 
Sam Shepard, the class president, the town doctor, good-looking athletic man, drives the nice car, has the great family. Uh, he also had some secrets. He had he did have affairs. And we'll talk about some of those and how they how they played a role or didn't play a role in the trials and in public perception of Sam Shepard. We start our story in July, early July of 1954. Sam and Marilyn having some relationship problems, but Sam and Marilyn were expecting their second child. Maybe slightly unexpected for them, but they went to Sam, uh, Sam's brother's house for a dinner with all their friends and family, and they made the announcement to everyone. It was known. This is two nights before Marilyn Shepard would turn up dead at her home in her bedroom on July 2nd. July 3rd, the day before July 4th, Sam Shepard, a doctor, he gets called in. He has a crazy day at the office. Um, he loses a small child, a patient who was hit by a car earlier that day. Um, a number of very serious patients, but he has a long day at the office and he comes home and some friends were over and it was a nice cool night in July on the lake. The breeze is coming in the house. Um, and the friends are still over later at night, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. The, uh, the shepherds are listening to the Cleveland Indians are on the radio. Sam was a big sports fan. He used to brag about how he hung out with all the Cleveland Browns. The Browns were actually good back then, which is crazy. They won multiple NFL championships in the 1950s. And he was friends, he would claim, with Otto Graham, the famous quarterback of the Browns. And they're sitting there listening to the the game. The 1954 Indians, I believe they're playing the White Sox in Chicago. Um, The 54 Indians would actually win the American League pennant. Uh, make the World Series and, and lose in a famous collapse against Willie Mays, who made that incredible over-the-back basket catch in Game 1. But the 1954 Indians are really good, beside the point. Um, and Sam falls asleep during the game. The neighbors, are, the friends who were over, end up leaving later that night, I don't know, around 11, 11.30. And Marilyn goes upstairs and goes to bed. Sam falls asleep wearing a white T-shirt, Multiple people testified to this. A white t-shirt and a pair of of brown trousers. At some point in the middle of the night, we're saying, Sam says probably around 4.30 in the morning, he awakes to the screaming upstairs of his wife. She screams out his name. Sam awakes. He, it's dark. He's disoriented. And he goes up the stairs. Again, been awake for moments. He gets to the top of the stairs, and he sees a figure. And that figure strikes him over the back of the head before he gets to the bedroom, and he's knocked unconscious. Again, Sam's story. This is the morning of July 4, 1954. He wakes up, still hasn't checked on his wife, but he wakes up from being unconscious, doesn't know how long he's out. It could have been 10 minutes. It could have been 10 seconds. But he hears noises downstairs, and he comes to, and he runs downstairs as fast as he can, and he sees someone run out their back door towards the lake. There's some steps in their backyard that lead down to the lake. And we'll tell, this is how Sam remembered telling the story uh, days later when he was investigated and when he talks to the media. But I uh, saw this uh, white object as I uh, came up the stairs. The silhouette of a biped 
that was uh, apparently taller than myself, and the head was uh, of a large, uh, bushy nature. And when he gets to the bottom of the stairs, he gets into another fight with this bushy-haired man, as he says. And again, he's, he's, whether he's put into a headlock, he can't really say, but he's knocked unconscious again right at the, where the waves are co- coming and crashing in on him. When he comes to, he goes inside the house, he goes up to the room, and he sees his bed covered in blood. The two twin beds in their bedroom. And Marilyn towards the, is brought down kind of towards the foot of the bed. Her pants are around one foot. Her dress, her night, her I guess nightgown is unbuttoned, or is pulled up, uh, exposing her breasts, and she's clearly dead. She's been bludgeoned in the head. Ultimately, it's found that she's hit in the head with some kind of object twenty-seven times. Sam, he checks on her. He is a doctor. He doesn't know what to do, and he calls the Halks, his friends. They're they're an older couple that they are friends with. Mister Halk is the mayor of Bay Village. And the Halks race over, and Sam says somebody needs to go check on Marilyn. And they go upstairs, and she's they decide she's dead. There's nothing they can do. The Halks are the ones around 6 in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, who call the police. Sam calls his brother Stephen, his older brother Stephen, also a doctor. Stephen and his, his wife show up just as the cops are. I always thought it was odd, everything that I read. Stephen and his wife show up, and they are dressed, and he's in a, like a suit jacket, and he's, they're both clearly recently showered, um, and they get there in about 12 minutes, even though they live about you know 10 minutes away. Um, it was just an odd thing in the police report, how quickly Stephen and his wife showed up, and how they appeared. They did not appear like they had just woken up, even though it's about 6.30 in the morning. They are showered, they are shaved, he's shaved, and, and, they're, and they're ready to go to help however they can. Stephen takes his brother, who has claims very bad neck and back injuries. And before the investigators can all get there, the police do arrive. But Stephen takes him to Bayview Hospital, where he gives him an examination. And Stephen determines um, that he has a cracked vertebrae, that he has neck injuries. And throughout this process, the investigation of this murder, if you ever look at any of the old pictures, and we'll put a few up, um, and on the cover of our guest's book is a picture of Sam wearing a neck brace. Speaking of our guest, Bill Mason, we asked Bill what that crime scene looked like. What the crime scene, Marilyn Shepard's crime scene at their home in Bay Village, what did it look like to an experienced prosecutor, to an experienced investigator, um, when they arrived on the scene the morning of July 4th, 1954? All right, so we're sitting here in downtown Cleveland with Bill Mason, the former county prosecutor who headed up the Sam Shepard uh, civil trial case in 2000. Uh, Bill, let's go back and talk a little bit about July 1954. Maryland's murdered on July 4th, the morning of July 4th. Um, anything you remember from, from putting the case together, just about that crime scene? Anything seem out of the ordinary from all the cases you've done or, or anything you remember kind of about the home there on Lake Avenue? Yeah, it, it's, a, um, it's a different, it's not what you might think of this big crime scene. This is a regular house in a, a bedroom community, Bay Village, Ohio, that probably has about 300 houses in the community right off the lake. It's a nice, quiet community. The crime scene itself was, uh, the house was a butts against lake area, 
and um, the crime scene in the house was kind of like weird because you know every room of the house you know drawers were just kind of like opened and dumped on the floor shotguns sitting in the office weren't disturbed uh everything about the house was in perfectly like you might have seen it the night before they went to bed but then just things to make it look like a crime had occurred it, it looked, was just it a little staged. different it looked yeah a little those, bit. that's the word sam meets with investigators and he meets primarily with coroner sam gerber the coroner in, in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County in the 50s was not the kind of coroner we're used to that just examines dead bodies, gives you a cause of death. Sam Gerber was the chief investigator in the county. He had been for decades, very well respected. And Sam Gerber is basically, seems convinced right off the start, and for a number of reasons, but that Sam Shepard is, uh, is the one who killed his wife. He is the murderer. And Sam Gerber starts his investigation, and he goes after Sam Shepard to try and pin this on him. We asked Bill about Sam Gerber um, and his role in these early investigations. There's a different, uh, a little bit different way that investigations were done, at least in Bay Village, and this is really the county uh, back in the 50s. There's a, there's a man in the case we talk about in the episode, Coroner uh, Gerber. And it's not the same role a coroner has that we think of now where he simply, you know, examines the, the dead bodies and makes the coroner's report as the cause of death and other things. Um, talk about Coroner Gerber's role and how it was kind of different in the 50s than, than we would see now in, in the 21st century. Well, first, uh, Gerber had been the coroner for a very long time, so he's a very respected uh, person in the community. He was an attorney also as well as a, a physician. Uh, and what he took on the homicides apparently he took major a major role like today you really wouldn't see a coroner or or medical examiner showing up on a crime scene he did and he always did uh in particular to this he had he had uh he had interviewed sam shepherd did an inquest of sam shepherd with the evidence at the bayville bay village high school gymnasium like two maybe three weeks probably two weeks after the homicide so it was uh, he had a he was <laughs> he was a different kind of coroner. He was so the the inquest uh, and I, I just don't know the answer. This is just off the top of my head, but I mean that's something Sam could have not gone to, right? I mean it's more of a optional thing for him, I would think. Certainly, you know we defendants have the right to remain silent, and he could have done that. But the coroner also has under the law the right to do what he did. Mm-hmm. There's a provision in the law that allows him to have an inquest and ask questions to help him determine cause and manner of death. Now, your cover of your book, uh, Dr. Sam, uh, Sam Shepard on Trial, I think that's actually a picture from the inquest, is it not? That is. That's a, question, that's a picture of Sam Shepard sitting at a table with his attorney and cor- uh, 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 Coroner Gerber asking him questions. And he's wearing his, he's wearing his, uh, his neck brace. He have his, yeah, he's got his neck brace on and he's wearing those aviator sunglasses. I just think it's kind of a, he looks a little bit smug in the photo. I don't know. I thought it was a good one that you guys chose. Yeah. Investigations. And like Bill mentions, Sam holds an inquest, which is within his right to do so. It's a public hearing. It's held in the gymnasium in Bay. The media is all over this case. It has all the elements of a, of a just huge story of the summer. The national media has picked it up. But Cleveland, with three newspapers, they're going nuts over it. Um. And so he has him into this inquest, and basically he's investi- he is interrogating Sam about these murders in his life. Um, and you know he gets rumors of these women. And he, 
hours upon hours. Um, and he does it for a couple of nights before he actually ends up just calling the whole thing off. The press coverage is relentless. A headline reads, someone is getting away with murder. It's a front page editorial, basically intimating that Sam Shepard killed his wife and that he's going to get away with it because he's rich and privileged. Things like, what are you waiting for? Question mark ahead, like, bring him in. It's another headline that was in the, on, the, on the front page of the Cleveland Press. The story was selling papers. The story was selling nationally. Who killed Marilyn Shepard? that night in her bed. So you're no stranger. You've been in the public eye up here in Northeast Ohio for years. You're no stranger to the Cleveland media. and It's a lot different than, I would say, even Cincinnati or Columbus. It's a lot more sensationalized. Um, I would even say sometimes ridiculous places like, you know, Action 19 News uh, in particular, especially when I lived up here. But following the murder in 54, the newspapers, and there's three Cleveland newspapers at this time. There's the Cleveland Press, the Plain Dealer. I'm not familiar with the third one. Um, but they, they really build up this story. It's the story of the summer. They make it a national story. Um, the Cleveland Press especially pressing the coroner and the county to do something um, about the murder. Talk about, do you think the Cleveland media is worse now than they were in the 50s? There's only one paper now, that the Plain Dealer, but we've got to deal with all these television stations, the talk radio up here in Cleveland. Just talk a little bit. I know you've had some some relationships with the Cleveland media on and off for years. Yeah, I mean they, you know, by and far they do their job. I and mean, they're, you know, the media's job is to get information out as quick as they can. 1954, the Plain Dealer and the Press, and I think it was called the the Gazette. Those were the um, that was the main source of information for people. Today, you get information in a thousand different directions, but they are because there there is so many dire- different directions that come from. They're so aggressive about trying to reach a conclusion on what they know quickly, uh, and it becomes distorted somewhat. But today, it's crazier in that there's the social media aspect to it. Uh, back then, you know, they got excited about this crime, and they were demanding that law enforcement come up with, the, uh, you know, the wrongdoer. Right. And so a lot, to me, it's a lot the same. <laughs> Sam makes a big slip-up during the inquest. He denies a relationship he had with a, a, uh, a doctor's assistant, I guess I'll call her, from Bayview Hospital, who now lives out in Los Angeles, a woman named Susan Hayes, a young woman, 21, 22 years old, worked at Sam's office, and they had an affair. And it was a pretty public affair, to be honest with you. Um, Gerber gets the corner, Sam Gerber gets, gets wind of it, and Sam Shepard denies that this ever happened. Um, and it's quickly, the press comes out, and even Susan Hayes is tracked down out in California, that not only was this thing still going on, um, but Sam had lied about it. And if he lied about this relationship, which is now blasted all over the newspapers with Susan Hayes, and there are other women that are discussed in, the, in these newspapers as the investigation continues, if he could lie about this, why couldn't he lie about committing the murder? He lied during the inquest, and at the end of July, with all the media pressure, Coroner Gerber decides that he's got enough evidence, um, and they go, and they arrest Sam Shepard for the murder of Marilyn Shepard.
Ace's race to trial, Sam still adamant about his bushy-haired intruder story um, and that he's not the murderer. When the police arrived, he shows they show up. He's still wet, he says, from when he was down. He woke up on the lake with the waves crashing over him. He's still wearing those trousers. They have one blood spot on him, on the leg. Um, really, you would think he would have a lot more um, on his body, you know, considering how much blood, especially if he was the murderer. He's not wearing a shirt. And like we said, many people testify, the people who were at the home that night, testified that when he went to sleep, he, wa- he fell asleep early. He was sleeping on a daybed downstairs. He passed out. And he was wearing a white t-shirt at that time. Sam's not wearing a shirt. That, that shirt's nowhere to be found. And Sam has no explanation for that. Um, no murder weapon is, is found. Whether it's a blunt object, they don't find anything in the house. Uh, Gerber says he thinks it's some kind of surgical weapon. Um, and we asked we ask Bill Mason about, about the murder weapon later. But there is no murder weapon. Um, you would think that Sam would be covered in blood if he was the killer, but he wasn't. There were some spots of blood on him, and we'll talk about some of the more important spots of blood. But this was a brutal crime scene. Someone struck 27 times in the head with blunt force trauma. Um, I've seen the pictures. I'm not going to put them on the website, but it is a gruesome, gruesome crime scene. Shepard goes to trial in Cleveland for murder. First-degree murder, second-degree murder. And the trial goes on, and... Coroner Gerber gives really compelling testimony, and they talk about these relationships and their marriage was strained, um, and some of these inconsistencies and how Sam's stories changed a little bit, um, and how he thinks it's a medical instrument that was used in the murder. And Sam's case goes to the jury in 1954, in December of 1954. We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant, Sam A. Shepard, not guilty of murder in the first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree. Guilty. Sam Shepard of second degree murder. He gets life in jail in 1954. In the 1960s, he continues to maintain his innocence. Sam Shepard, his appeals getting denied, um, hires a young attorney named F. Lee Bailey. And Bailey, this young, up-and-coming attorney from the city of Boston, um, 25 years old, I think, when he starts representing Sam. He's only been a lawyer a year. And he starts winning motions. And he starts going on TV, talking about the Sam Shepard case and how he's going to get another trial. They were encouraged and indeed made signatory to a complete whitewash of perhaps the worst investigation in the history of American crime. I think it's an awful shame. And he gets the case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And it's based on Sam's Sixth Amendment right, which is honored through the 14th Amendment. Um, And basically saying that Sam was not giving a fair and impartial jury. That the jury pool had been tampered. The media craze and the judge's uh, response to some of the media's inquiries, um, like we talk about with Bill... You know, the jurors' names were posted, names and addresses were posted in the Cleveland papers. You couldn't get away from this trial. And it sets a Shepard v. Maxwell is the name of the case. And by an 8-1 to one margin, an 8-1 to one margin, the Supreme Court rules that Sam Shepard did not get a fair trial. 
for the reasons laid out by F. Lee Bailey. And thus, the case is remanded. It's sent back to Cuyahoga County, and Sam Shepard, in 1964, after 10 years in jail, is released to await retrial. So the first trial in 1954, we talked about earlier in the episode, results in a conviction. Uh, and 10 years later, he's released. A new trial's ordered. Um, F. Lee Bailey, the young hotshot attorney uh, from Boston, he appeals it all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's actually an 8-1 to margin. The Supreme Court rules that a new trial should be ordered. What are your thoughts kind of on that decision? Do you agree with that the media and the judge, their conduct uh, warranted a new trial? Have you, I mean, obviously, it's not something you litigated. But just talk about a little bit the actual, you know, vacate of the of the original conviction and setting for a second trial. That Supreme, it did go all the way to Supreme Court and really did have some changes as far as how trials are done. Yeah, it did. It went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and I think it was a good decision. It's actually a still today a landmark decision on how judges and uh, juries conduct their business on these criminal trials. Um, I mean, they, in this case, you would never think of this. In this case, they, in the, in the press, they listed all of the potential jurors on the front page of the Plain Dealer. That's and, right. And, and it's, a, it's supposed to be a secluded process. It makes sense that you would keep them out of the picture, out of the sideshow, that they'd only, so they only hear the real facts of the trial. So I think it was a good decision by the Supreme Court. Sam's a celebrity again. He marries a, a, a beautiful German woman who had become like a jailhouse pen, uh, pen pal. Um, and he's back in the news, and he's doing interviews, and him and F. Lee Bailey have this great case. Um, and in 1966, the case is prepared to go back in front of a judge. Another second trial for Sam Shepard for the murder of Marilyn Shepard. We listen real quick to Sam Gerber. The coroner is still a major witness in this case, and what he thinks about the retrial. Well, as far as we're concerned, we have the same evidence that we had before. We have the same people available, and we can go to trial tomorrow. But F. Lee Bailey's on the attack. He brings in a, a man named uh, Dr. Kirk, who testifies that these injuries and the blood spatter evidence, all the stuff that was not really investigated in the 1954 trial, Dr. Kirk is saying that the spatter is, is likely to have come from someone who was left-handed, someone who is weaker, a woman or a child, um, that her teeth, Marilyn's teeth, were, were knocked out. Um, her front teeth were, were not still in her mouth, but because she had bitten the attacker. And Sam had no injuries. And the way her teeth were broken were, were, you know, were in line with someone whose teeth had broken out through a bite, not through being smashed. Um, these little things. And Dr. Kirk goes on the stand, and a lot of his, you know, his early DNA-type evidence, we don't have, quite have that, but his blood spatter evidence goes pretty much uncontroverted by the state. The F. Lee Bailey grills Gerber on the stand um, and really grills him on this murder weapon issue. And, and we ask Bill Mason about, you know, what's it like to have a case where there is no murder weapon? Um, and we'll, we'll get his quote later. But Gerber is basically seen to be grasping at straws. The show The Fugitive had come out and... and in between the murders, their books had been written, and there really is some sympathy among the, among the community for Sam Shepard. This idea that he was falsely convicted, um, I think, has a lot to do with the television show. Um, but it starts to permeate the trial. And we asked Bill Mason about that second trial in 1966. 
um, as Sam Shepard is on trial for a second time for the murder of his wife. It was different from the first. Bailey's, you know, he's out to make a name for himself. Uh, involves, we get into some of this early, and we can dispute the evidence in the second trial, but we get into some of this blood spatter and uh, Dr. Paul Kirk trying to convince jurors that the killer was left-handed, all these different findings. Um, talk about Kirk's testimony. He talks about the Maryland's teeth and how they had to have been broken through a bite. This is all stuff that you now have to come back, look at in 1999, and then try to refute in 2000 because you know those findings are going to come up again in court. Exactly, and that's exactly what we did. We took both the trials and we analyzed what the defense attorneys proposed the outcomes and then try to tear them apart by new scientific evidence or factual. In that instance, uh, Dr. Kirk, um, Leland Kirk, I believe his name was, uh, he testified in court that uh, Marilyn bit her attacker so that the attacker was bleeding and that the person had to be a left-handed person by the way the, the blows were on the head. And of course, Sam was a right-handed man. I mean, it was the, these kind of things. But what's, what's really interesting about the second trial that I think really, I think there was a lot of several things. There was his testimony and the prosecution didn't bring anybody in to oppose his versions of the events. Uh, but it was also 10 years, he'd served 10 years already. So at the time in 1954, uh, for that type of crime, which was probably, in my, my real estimation, was probably a, um, uh, um, a domestic violence gone wrong, uh, that type of a homicide. And if somebody in 1954 would have committed that crime, they probably would have gotten 10 years of, and then they've been released. In this instance, the media was still affixed on this case, and and the Sam Shepard family and friends were always making arguments that he didn't do what he did for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's how he finally got the Supreme Court of Ohio to overturn the conviction. Um, and then after the conviction was overturned, it, you know, we were getting ready for another trial. We had different prosecutors. So John T. Corrigan became the prosecutor. Uh, the prosecutor before was really aggressive. The first trial took, I believe, took three or four weeks. The second trial took seven or eight days. And it, the whole trial was just, the whole evidence was just kind of panned down a little bit and moved through it quickly. F. Lee Bailey, Sam Shepard win. He's acquitted. Acquitted of murder in 1966. We asked Bill... Why he thinks Sam Shepard was found not guilty in this second trial, which everyone thought would be the final trial for Sam Shepard. And so nobody really had the passion to move forward like they did the first time. Sure, and the you know the Fugitive Show would come out, and that's loosely based on it. It's just it's a much different atmosphere, I guess. What you're trying to say, and I, I completely agree. Um, you know, one thing we talk about, and we and, and I just want to talk about, I think played a role in '66 because they do. Uh, Coroner Gerber does testify again in this case, and, and Bailey really goes after him about this murder weapon. Um, he says it's a surgical instrument, but he can't. they never really pin down a murder weapon in the 66 trial or the 54 trial. Um, just what role in any trial does a murder weapon have, um, and, and especially in, in the Shepard case? Well, first, every murder, you know, any murder... You know, the one that happened last night, if you don't have the murder weapon to be able to help you say what the cause of death was, that's hard. To, that's hard to get around. So when you don't have a murder weapon, in a high profile case like this to say this is what caused these damages, it certainly just helps the um, uh, the defense. 
in this instance, uh, it was a little bit prejudicial, and I think some of the courts had made comment to this, that um, Dr. Gerber had said that even though he didn't have a weapon, that it looked like it was a surgical weapon. And, of course, Sam Shepard was a doctor, and it kind of made that little leap that wasn't there otherwise. Sam Shepard gives an interview a few years later. As he walks in to the courtroom to hear the verdict in 1966, he's sitting next to Ethelie Bailey, and he says he brought a gun with him to the courtroom. And if he's found guilty, he says he's not going back to jail. We'll play you the clip here in a minute. If he's found guilty, Sam has decided to end his life by what's called suicide by cop. The jury reads the verdict. They give it to the judge, and the judge says, not guilty on all counts. Sam Shepard is free. My intentions were to not return to the Ohio Penitentiary. Did you intend to kill yourself? Period. That's it. No, I didn't intend to kill myself. What did you intend to do? Uh... That's my business. How did you think that would prevent your return to the penitentiary? Well, I would have been eliminated. You feel that they would have fired on you if you'd gone? Oh, I know that. I'm sure of this. talked a little bit about why do you think the second jury trial resulted the way it did was it Effley Bailey was it Kirk was it um, just a different jury or do you I mean from analyzing that that case you do in the book and you did when you prep for the trial what do you think the main reasons that the jury found Sam not guilty in 1966 uh, some key ones uh, first and foremost uh, Effley Bailey was a good lawyer he was a very good lawyer very persuasive persuasive guy uh, Leland Kirk, who was an expert witness, came in and testified. It was uncontroverted by the prosecution. And the case was old. Sam Shepard is free. He ends up getting a divorce um, from his German wife, second wife. Um, he tries to practice medicine again, but he's rusty. It's been 15 years or whatever, 12 years. He loses a few patients. He's working at a, out of a place in Youngstown. And he moves to Columbus, Ohio. And he actually becomes a professional wrestler. He'd be gotten into wrestling, and he was very good at it when he was in jail. Um, and he, but he wrestles, and Sam was different. When he got out of jail, man, he was a different guy. He had drug and alcohol issues, um, certainly the drug issues that had, had actually started in, in jail. And he comes in, he's a wrestler by the name of Killer Shepherd. It's a, not a good name, not a good look. Um, but he plays, you know, he's playing it up to the audience, I guess. We can look at it that way. He's drinking heavily. This is in the late 60s. He actually does remarry a Columbus girl. Um, he remarries his promoter, his wrestling promoter's 19-year-old daughter. They run away to Mexico and get married. Um, 19-year-old blonde lady from Columbus. And a couple years later, Sam dies of liver failure. He dies in Columbus. Sam dies on April 6, 1970, leaving behind his son, Sam Reese Shepard, and his uh, 
wife of one year, Colleen Strickland. Sam's buried in Columbus. You would think the story would end there. But as far as our episode goes, our story's just getting started. That was the setup. What we're going to talk about now is the third trial. In 2000, in Cleveland, Ohio, Sam Reese Shepard, on behalf of the estate of Sam, Dr. Sam Shepard, sues the state of Ohio for a wrongful imprisonment plea. He's asking for millions of dollars in damages on behalf of the estate. And the case winds through the courts, and it lands on the desk of Bill Mason, the newly named, soon-to-be-re-elected county prosecutor of Cuyahoga County. As we move into the second part of this story, the retrial, the civil trial of the Sam Shepard murder case, um, we have to start by saying we interviewed the prosecutor in that case. We didn't, we did not able to reach out to Sam Reese Shepard or anyone like that for their side of the story, um, but we will try to show the most balanced view we can of the case. But again. You got to remember, a lot of this is looking through the lens of the prosecutor of the case. Bill Mason, someone who feels that Sam Shepard is guilty of this murder. The crazy thing, the story's back in the news. The crazy thing about it is now we have all this modern technology. We're in the late 90s when the case is refiled. And we're going to have a modern trial, even though the evidence is aged and obviously could be less reliable, contaminated at this point. Um... Both sides are going to use DNA and experts and blood spatter and, and FBI investigators and all these things, all these modern things that we're used to in you know the law and order world. Um, we're going to look at all this different evidence that was never looked at in 54 and 66. The case for wrongful imprisonment is filed by Sam Reese Shepard on behalf of, of Dr. Sam Shepard's estate. And the case gets national news when Sam Reese Shepard decides to exhume his father's body to get DNA evidence off of his father's corpse. And suddenly, the trial of the century, this is a few years after the O.J. Simpson trial, so the real trial of the century, but the first trial of the century is back in the news. File reopening one of the most famous murder cases in American history, the case that inspired TV's The Fugitive. Today, the body of Dr. Sam Shepard was exhumed and sent for DNA testing in an effort by his son to prove his father's innocence. A backhoe dug up the Columbus, Ohio gravesite where Shepard's remains have been buried for 27 years. Sam Reese Shepard was seven when his father was accused of killing his mother. Until his death, Shepard claimed an intruder was the real killer. Today, Shepard's son laid daisies on the coffin and later spoke bitterly, saying this was the first time he'd been allowed to properly grieve. And I feel a great sorrow now. A great sorrow that was not allowed to me as a young child by the media. I was unable to attend my mother's funeral, and I could not go to my dad's funeral as a young adult because I would have taken one of these and put them down somebody's throat. But we're going to stop right there. We're going to move on to part two. Um, like I said, there's just way too much to put all this in one episode. Um, so make sure you download the next episode. It's still episode seven. It's episode seven, part two, Ohio versus murder. We're going to look at the crazy 
third trial, the third and final trial of Sam Shepard for the murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard. So download that one, release them both at the same time. Um, like I said, rate and review the podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes, and we'll see you on the flip side for the conclusion, part two of Ohio versus murder. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.